Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast. Open source is an incredibly social art. Open source is innovation. Like open source is enabling. Open source is community. And open source is weird. Open source is incredibly important. Open source is hard. Open source is engaging. Open source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open source is, well, my life. <laughs> and open source is not free. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and just changed maybe their careers or lives back then or ever since. Welcome to the My Open Source Experience podcast. This is a mid-season episode of season one after a short Christmas break. Phil and I are talking about 2023, what happened on this podcast and in the overall open source ecosystem. And we are also sharing our predictions with you about 2024. Our topics include favorite moments of the podcast so far, as well as AI and licensing. Enjoy the show. So, Phil, um, do you have a favorite moment from what episodes we already have aired in season one since we are in a mid-season episode right now? Well, I spent an awful lot of time in my day job continuing to talk about the value of open source to a variety of different managers and a variety of different companies as far as that goes. And so, um, Alex... Alex Graman's discussion that we had uh, on how to actually measure and articulate that value uh, still sticks out to me as uh, a very interesting point. Um, and the way he went about describing that to his stakeholders and the success he had there, that I found that quite interesting. How about you? I really love that episode too. I think that especially with some recent-ish events, uh, like being able to describe the value of open source, that is always going to be somewhat of a challenge. Um, I also really liked the uh, the episode with uh, Rob Hirschfeld, like um, the different um, sort of angles of, of open source and like participating in a community, uh, creating a new project and uh, serving on a on the board of directors of a, of a foundation that supports open source communities. I think we had a, a lot of different perspectives in that episode and um, I've been involved in open source for a while now, but like his comments about like being on the board and what the uh, the function and purpose of a of a board of directors group is, mm -hmm. I I feel that I I learned some some new things. It's not necessarily things that I did not know, but I I never put it into that perspective that he was describing it from. And I think that was a very informative segment. And I, I really, really loved that. Yeah, because there are so many different roles, right? Um, you know, you and I have both been um, 
in the role of participating from an individual organization, as well as trying to facilitate a bunch of different organizations coming and working together. And those two perspectives are very, very different. And then as Rob mentioned, yes, um, being on the board or being within the committee of a board or both um, are also still yet another hat uh, you would have to wear if you talk in the Apache terms of wearing different hats for who you're representing and who you're trying to look out for. Um, I think all three of those are interesting perspectives and they're different, right? You have to look at each issue and topic um, uh, in a different way, uh, depending on what you're doing. Yes, and I think that um, it can be hard for people to think about the different hats and perspectives um, as opposed to just what you're sitting in at the moment. So hearing others who have these different experiences to me, it's very helpful um, because then I can just kind of imagine that that I'm wearing that hat and just listening to their story and just understand really what it feels like, what what they needed to do, what challenges they had, what they what they could accomplish with wearing that hat and what they could not accomplish because that's not the responsibility of that particular role or position that they they are having at that time. And I think that that both of those are are very important to uh, to understand and have a view on because it's, it's one thing what you want to accomplish, but it's also another thing that you need to understand what you can accomplish in a given position. And yep. it's not always straightforward to figure it out, in my yep. experience. Uh, the new sets of regulations that are coming out uh, in the form of the Cyber Resilience Act. I can tell you that I looked at it from both the corporate standpoint, okay, what does this uh, legislation and, and regulation set mean to uh, a company in particular, um, as well as what does it mean to the various open source foundations and the various open source projects uh, that uh, that we participate in, that, that Ericsson and many other companies uh, thoroughly rely on, right? And certainly for a good portion of the year, uh, that legislation was quite troubling to a lot of open source developers and a lot of open source um, foundations. <clears throat> uh, I think everybody agreed that the intent of the regulation was good and was gonna be goodness for everybody, uh, be it users through the entire ecosystem, um, but how it was implemented could be a problem, right? Most certainly for the foundations and for individual developers. That's what had me most concerned uh, because it had the opportunity to really threaten the way open source could be actually done, um, at least uh, within Europe, which again, Ericsson being a European company was rather impactful. But now as that process ran through and in the end, the open source ecosystem was heard um, from the legislators who were doing that work. And we now have the final draft and it has wording that pretty much everybody in the ecosystem believes is going to be okay and that we can all live with. Now it turns to what do the companies actually do to properly manage that open source and the vulnerabilities associated with that open source coming in. Uh, again, something that everybody agrees is good um, and everybody is willing and accepts should be worked on from a standpoint of we deliver software, we need to make sure that we know all the software that's in the thing that we're delivering as well as that uh, the vulnerabilities are managed and under control and understood. Um, 
And given that so much of that is coming from open source, that could be an issue. Um, and so the question is, do companies now try to figure out how to do that on their own uh, individually, or is there going to be some kind of push within the open source ecosystem to significantly improve the way versions are upgraded across all the open source components, um, better S-bombs that are happening across all the components so that everybody in the ecosystem can benefit from it, or are we going to do this one company at a time? So that's now the new question, right, for 2024. And I think that will be an interesting one. Um, and I do think that supply chain security is going to continue to be a very hot topic. Um, I think we're in a, in a world state right now where we have to expect that there will continue to be significant attacks from state actors. Um, and open source is still going to be a place where those kind of vulnerabilities can occur. So if I look into 2024, I predict there will be at least one other event similar to Log4J that is significant and pretty ubiquitous across the ecosystem. And the open source ecosystem and all of the companies and individuals involved are going to have to respond. We we were both following the uh, the CRA, uh, how it evolved in 2023. And as you said, the CRA itself landed at a place that currently looks uh, looks doable from from open source perspective, um, and it's somewhat in the hands of of companies who are using open source software and somewhat in the hands of the open source ecosystem. However, um, in my experience, when it comes to uh, companies and corporate organizations and open source strategy, involvement in open source, that is still a huge challenge. Um, do you think that something like the, uh, the CRA, as it is written currently, do you think that could be finally a driver for companies who are currently using open source but not involved to actually get involved and others who are involved but more in a siloed way or still in somewhat of a bubble to look into how to collaborate with others more, whether they are partners, competitors, customers? I'm certainly hopeful, right? I think that the CRA and similar legislation where individual companies delivering software, and by definition, that software is typically based on open source, often substantially, substantial portions of it being open source. Every company is going to have this requirement. And similar to other collaborative coordinated activities in the past, when a group of companies have something very similar to accomplish, and it's not particularly differentiating um, to get it done, it's just that it has to get done. Those are exactly the kind of platform um, activities or um, full breadth activities across an industry where we do see collaboration that does work. Um, be it a bunch of organizations coming together for OpenStack to have a virtualization environment or um, uh, you know, the Kubernetes ecosystem or what have you. I find this to be very similar in that we now have a requirement that has to be met to be able to do this. And it's, and it's a requirement that nobody pushes back on and goes, well, that's a bad idea, right? So everybody goes, this is a good idea. And so, like I said, we can either all do it individually as different organizations, or we can do it collectively 
and uh, save a lot of time and money ourselves. So do I expect there to be significant collaboration? Yes. Do I expect that there will still be free riders um, that aren't participating, but are indeed getting the benefit from that? Yes. I expect that to happen as well. Um, but, you know, getting back to the, the goal of the CRA with having those organizations that are in the best position to do the work, do the work, um, that's now in place. And if we do the work together, then we'll all benefit um, as members of that ecosystem. So what do you think was most significant with regard to artificial intelligence and its relationship with open source in 2023? And what do you foresee, prognosticate, will be uh, interesting with regard to FOSS and uh, AI in 2024? That's an excellent question. Um, when it comes to 2023, I think it was the year of AI being introduced to the masses in terms of being available and uh, something that people can try out and start to use and and really figure it out in practice what it is what it is and what it is good for and how it affects and impacts their lives so that's from from uh, more of a user personal perspective and i saw ai popping up in communities as well in terms of you know ai submitting a change or people submitting a change that was written by ai um so uh that that obviously started a lot of conversations in um in various communities as well as on the on the level of open source foundations who are supporting multiple communities to work on policies and processes in terms of how AI could, should interact with communities and sort of participate in, in different ways. Um, that's also, again, more of the usage perspective in open source. And then there's uh, the, the large language models and all the conversations in terms of there is some of that available as open source and like um meta had the big announcement that they are open sourcing theirs but then if you read into the license then you realize that it's not exactly an open source license because when you say that yeah you can you can use it access it and do whatever unless you are XYZ and unless you are a competitor or, or unless you, I don't know, wearing a pink dress that day, then you're not allowed to. And that's not what open source is about. So that, that also uh, triggered another huge set of conversations in terms of how to make the core of AI accessible to the masses as well. So it's not a privilege um, to have access to that. And it's not in the hands of large corporate organizations, how AI um, evolves and gets developed. And I think that that will be crucial. That part of the conversation will be crucial for us as just humanity. So, so that, that everyone has a chance to have a say, have an understanding and, and have some options to, um, 
to steer the conversation as well as the uh, the evolution of AI, because otherwise it's I'm not sure this is the planet where I want to live <laughs> if if that is denied. Um that access is denied. So um, there, there are a lot of ongoing conversations, and I, I remember participating in a in a workshop, um, end of twenty twenty three or towards the end of the year, uh, driven by uh, OSI, the Open Source Initiative, mm -hmm. and just really trying to define, you know, um, the workflows around open source AI. Um, like how do you even approach it? Uh, like how you approach a language model when you talk about it being open source, like the, uh, the usage of it, the modifications of it, um, how you test it, how you deal with the, uh, the vulnerabilities, uh, for, for something like that. So it's, um, we have to, uh, have the, uh, the understanding of, the components of AI and and understand what we can use from the the software world when we are approaching AI and the language models and all the other components to it, and then and then how to make sure that that everyone has access to uh, to open source versions of it. So it's um yep. it's a huge challenge. And when it comes to twenty twenty four, like um. Another another um, thing that came up at another community call yesterday morning <laughs> was um, there was a project team call earlier that day uh, that someone brought up on the community meeting saying that there was this AI bot on the meeting and like, what is that? Is that part of the conference tool? Why was it there? What are people doing with, you know, what we said on that call? And it made people very uncomfortable. Oh. So um, that is something that I have on my plate to to sort out. But at the same time, it's just, again, the, the next step of that AI being used and AI interacting with with projects, um, so that is something that that the community is now talking about in terms of um, like harmful ways of of using a, an AI bot and an AI assistant, as well as the the good ways of using it because. Um, People with like hearing disabilities, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, they can get a lot of use out of a, of an AI bot who just listens to the meeting, writes up a transcript, a summary. Uh, so from their perspective, it is a huge help. But at the same time, it's also very easy to use um, that AI bot in a harmful way. Yep. And that, that is something that, again, communities will need to more directly discuss and address and and come up with their own policies in terms of what they what they are comfortable with and and how to prevent things from happening that are not not good for the community individuals the ecosystem at large and another example that that um we've been also experiencing at our in our communities is people posting uh, responses to the mailing list to questions and you can tell that the responses were generated by AI and 
often they are either not useful or if it's like a deployment type of question, then the AI might have got it right, but it might not have. And then if you're responding to a question with something that actually doesn't work and it appears like it's something that you, you've already done. So the person who reads the response trusts that it will work and then it messes mm -hmm. up their system, then it does more harm than good. So that's another way of, again, AI interaction that doesn't touch the code, but it affects the community's communication uh, to a large extent. So I, I kind of see 2024 as the year when we start to be more strategic and mindful about AI. And now that we are kind of past that shock of 2023, AI just buzzed in to, to the here and then everybody's disrupted. Now we 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 know it exists. We we have a level of understanding of how it is currently used. So I think this is this will be the year when we start to not just be more strategic, but also be more efficient and effective with AI. But it will take a lot of work. Yeah. How do you see it? <laughs> it's interesting. Um you know, you, uh, you, you talk about basically that's dis disinformation, right? If you've got bots answering that seem like it's legitimate, but it's not, um, you know, humans don't typically do that. Or if you do, they have a reputation of not being very good <laughs> at providing feedback. Um, so it's, it's taken in that sense, right? But when you have a lot of different artificial actors out there, how do you, how do you actually know? I mean, that was one of the interesting things that I found um, in one of the community calls we had had uh, in OpenStack, which was, you know, the maintainers talking about how they were concerned with what they were seeing, that they were needing to review AI generated code that in many cases wasn't very good. Um, and that was concerning to them, right? And so having a mindset change of, the developer community that if you're going to be leveraging AI to write substantial portions of your code, as opposed to, you know, just doing, um, you know, sentence completion type of stuff, if you're going to do more logic type of uh, creation in AI, then your job becomes a reviewer instead of a developer. So before you pass this off to anybody else to review, you should review it and make sure that it meets your quality control because you're going to be measured on it. Um, you know, from what that AI bot is going to be generating. Um, I found that to be an interesting you know, and important perspective, right? The developers actually, by definition, have to become better reviewers um, because they're going to have to start reviewing this code that's generated not by them. Um, and I found that the year, you know, I looked at it from the legal standpoint a lot because uh, that's part of what I do. Um, and there were lots of interesting conversations and um, topics that came out around the intellectual property associated with artificial intelligence, not the least of which is, you know, does a uh, large language model, for example, have the right to scrape everything um, uh, from the, the planet, be it code, be it books, be it what, what have you, be it news articles from the uh, New York Times or what have you. Um, and I think that's still falling under the category of fair use, but I do think 
that in 2024, that's going to be looked at really closely because it's a new type of use and it's got a new type of monetization around the what has been collected and scraped more so than anything in the past. And so I think it does need to be looked at um, from a regulatory and legal standpoint as to is the value created by the various entities still reasonably well distributed across those that are creating that content and that value and that intellectual property. And like I said, I think we have a new model here for how that's used. And so it has to be looked at. That is something that will happen. Um, then you've got the models themselves and you talk about, you know, meta licensing um, this, this, uh, the, this llama uh, model as being open source, regardless of if it was open source or not, it's not really something that's copyrightable. So you can't have a copyright license. So that's something that needs to be worked out as well. Um, and I think it will be. And then finally, you've got the output, you know, who owns the output? Is that something that can be copyrighted or not? Um, and I think that uh, in 2024, we'll see, we'll see legal discussions on that in particular. Um, cases like the New York Times uh, bringing forward um, their, their topic of, um, you know, you, you can't do this and you can't have that large language model uh, spit out something that is extremely close to the original work. Um, that'll, whatever gets decided there will have an implication on software. Um, and on open source in particular, because that's the vast majority of the corpus of code from which uh, these various large language models learn how to code is from all of that open source that's really available. So, um, you know, what happens in the literary world will impact what happens in the software world. And so that will be interesting to see. Um, I think we're also uh, to a point where folks are starting to recognize that you know there's not going to be a handful or even uh, a few dozen large language models that do everything for everybody there's going to be a gazillion smaller um, or more purpose-built uh, tools around ai but they'll probably all start with a foundational model. so if you look at that as a construct I think having open having something that is open source as those foundational models, and as you say, it's both the tools, the the input tools to build the model, it's the translation mechanisms for being able to to to, to transpose from one model to another or synthesize two models. There's a lot of tools around these that are going to be built, um, and then of course you've got the data. Is that open or not? Um, those are all questions we need to figure out at least from the foundational standpoint and then just like in open source right yeah y'all build the foundations together and then you differentiate on your very specific things i think that there's an there's an analogy there for what happens with language models or with generative ai models in general it's not a large language um but having foundational models that are common and then uh purpose-built ones that sit on top of that leverage that foundation model but are purpose-built for something specific um i think there's very much a place for open source in that and i think um if if the ecosystem is to thrive then that needs to end up manifesting um i think i'd also go out on a limb and say that in 2024 we're going to start to see ai-based computer languages um where it's 
the the code that you're writing is more of an intent based as opposed to a specific how do you write a for loop kind of based right so if you think about what we did from assembler to higher level languages i think we can now very much make a jump from higher level languages to something that's more intent based and by that it will also end up being more dialogue based right meaning you know i want you to you know you know, write me a program that does this and the actual software, the compiler comes back and says, well, now I could do this in this way or that way or the other way. Which way did you mean? And what would be your preference and what should take priority? And so it's actually a dialogue between the compiler and the developer. And then you end up with a set of code um, or you end up with an application. You end up with something that does something for you. Um, I expect we'll see things like that. I think there's going to be another order of abstraction that happens with computer languages. And so then if you think about that, what then is, what would be open source? Would it be the dialogue? Would it be what you actually said to the compiler and how you responded to its prompts? Is that then what's shared? Because that can be then repeated by, by, by entering another, or would it be the, would it be the actual output? I'm thinking it's probably not the output because that's still going to be very static. Whereas the dialogue can have much more nuance. Well, uh, you know, the original said this, but I actually wanted to do that. Or, you know, that's the 10% you're adding in open source, right? So, so that kind of model and what, what does open source mean when we have higher level languages? I think we're going to start seeing that 2024. And that, uh, that makes me excited for the future, right? I, I, I'm curious to see how that works out and what that looks like. It also opens up coding to a lot more people. Uh, because when you don't have to know what a for loop is and what a sparse matrix is and all of those other lovely things that you learned in computer science courses, um, and it's more intent-based, uh, I think it opens it up for a lot more people. So I'm kind of looking forward to that, and I expect to start to see artificial intelligence-based computer languages start, start to show up in 2024. I think it will be exciting when it happens. Whether it's 2024 or 2025, we will see. And that that might be when I get back into coding. I still know what a, what a for loop is. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't written one in a long time. It will it will definitely be um, nice to to have that. And then just like looking looking at how AI and technology just changes a lot of people's lives, even those yeah. who had not much to do with technology before. So it will be a, a very interesting era to, to see and live through. So um, that part excites me too. Everything that you brought up is licenses and not just in, in relation to AI. Like 2023, we also saw some small bumps in the road in a way like HashiCorp changing their license from open source to uh, business source. Um, and I think there was another license functional source that came out last year too. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, I always get a little upset when these things happen because um, it feels like in a lot of cases, it feels like um a hiccup in in a company's strategy but when they change license from open source to semi or fully closed then it also reflects back to the whole open source ecosystem mm -hmm. and like the the hashicorp change that was a that was a big buzz 
at least that's how I, I experienced it. It was it was significant news. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little unfair in a way to a lot of communities who are working tirelessly and companies who who figured out a a way that they they made open source work both for themselves as well as the communities where they are active in. And it just feels unfair when someone throws a huge rock into <laughs> into the pond because they are they are also reflecting on everybody else else's work. And I'm a little uncertain in terms of where 2024 will take us in terms of licenses, like whether we will focus more on AI anyway, and that will uh, distract a little bit from the license challenges or whether we will see some either more licenses popping up, which I'm most certainly hoping that it's not going to happen because we already have way too many licenses. Um, but at the same time, like, will we see more of that? Will we see less of that? Um, so I, I'm still kind of wondering where that's going to go. Do you have any view on that? I see both sides of the argument with regard to the licensing and the monetization of value brought forth by an organization in the sense that, you know, I, I can understand the frustration that must be felt by companies like HashiCorp um, or uh, 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 Elastic or whomever, where you know they're the ones that are putting forward the time, the energy, the money, the resources to create something that is of value. Um, and it must be incredibly frustrating to watch uh, another organization, a hyperscaler or whomever, take that original work and be able to monetize it substantially more successfully than the original author of the code. Um, I can understand that frustration, but at the same time, it's also what happens all over the place in the business world. And that's why you create value where you can protect it. I can give many examples, um, both of large companies who enable small companies who, um, uh, where most of the value is coming from the large company, but it's actually being uh, usurped by the small company. And in the case of uh, these organizations such as HashiCorp, I can understand them being frustrated that you know another organization is is putting forward more value. But if you recognize that you know those hyperscalers actually are providing value, they're providing um, support, they're providing an entire integration ecosystem that just works for their customer. And so it's not just the technology that is being provided by the hyperscaler. It's an entire ecosystem uh, that makes it easy to deploy, to create and deploy something in the cloud. And that's what the customers are buying, not that specific technology. Um, So while I understand the frustration, it's not something that hasn't been happening all over the place. And I do have a problem with the bait and switch. Um, if you wanted to go out with a business source license, you should have done it from the beginning. And yes, if you, if your product didn't have proper uptake because it wasn't open source, then that's, then it didn't have enough value to, to, to be there in the first place, but creating value or creating a, creating an ecosystem for your application based on one license and one set of expectations for usage, and then changing that midstream 
that is not an integrity play. That is not that is not standing by what you originally set out to do. Like I said, I can see both sides of that argument, but I end up falling on the side of I hope in 2024 that anytime some organization tries to do a bait and switch on a license change, that a substantial and proper and successful fork occurs and that others in the community pick that up for that given technology and move forward with it. Or it dies on the vine, both from a commercial standpoint and an open source standpoint. And there's some other alternative in the open source world that, that fits the need just as well. So, um, yeah, I know that's kind of harsh. It's not great for startups, um, but it's also, again, find where there's value to your customer and then drive that as opposed to it, trying to trick your customers into becoming customers in the beginning. That that just doesn't sit well. Yeah, I mean, even if it's harsh reality, I I think that this podcast and all conversations really have the value when we are able to put out the harsh truth as well and not not trying to cover it with makeup and band-aids and and those kind of things yeah. um and we also did see the forks happen um last mm -hmm. year as well and obviously time will tell how successful those forks will be whether they will be sustainable or 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 not we don't know that yet because they are still fairly new but at the same time you, you can definitely see that even with the um, the bait and switch model like you can't you can't take something away from the ecosystem if the ecosystem wants and needs it because you can fork yep, and they will find a way exactly they will yeah they will find a way and um i'm also hoping that at one point this will also be a, a more common understanding that the ecosystem will find a way that just kind of drives companies away from from this method because if if they do have the understanding that that they can't monetize on that ecosystem that they created because the ecosystem will just walk away because they can then they might not want to use that model anymore because it's not that beneficial like it's one thing that that you that you change the license but it's also reputation and you yeah you won't like, get another com you won't get another community you you can you won't start something in open source and get another community no yeah most certainly not and i mean like i said that it's unfair to the open source ecosystem because it's the reputation of the open source ecosystem as well and i i stand by that but at the same time it's also the reputation of the company and mm -hmm. if i was a customer or partner of a company who does something like this i would rethink the partnership and you know my work with that company because if they do it in one place then they might do it elsewhere too so you know the contracts can be very well written but there's always a back door there's always a finer print so you know just like the the level of trust just drops all over i think yeah well i mean it's just that it's just that a customer has to be a customer or partner has to be cognizant of the fact that that's probably the way it's going to end up Right. So if that partnership and that value of that software or whatever the deliverable is, is of value in the commercial aspect, then then that's fine. Just like, you know, again, uh, 
these companies aren't losing the customers that were already paying for it. Um, you know, because those customers found value from those technology providers for that given widget. And, you know, they didn't lose those people. Right? It's just that you know, if you're, if, if you're trying to gain significant popularity and a critical mass of users, um, as well as the feedback and the positive uh, marketing that happens um, through, through uh, word of mouth uh, in a community, that you can't expect to get again. That's that 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 lightning is not going to strike twice, and you've burnt you've burnt the bridge. So, just you know, like I said, you can always create technology that's that's worth it to people to pay for, and that's great. Um, and that would be the way that hopefully you expect to go on forward because it's not going to be any other way. Twenty-four will most certainly be interesting in terms of developments in these in these multiple spaces like the AI, the licenses, the 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 legislations, uh, the security and vulnerability space. Um, so, um, how do you see the evolution of our podcast along those lines? <laughs> oh, I expect more very interesting topics, and I expect very interesting guests with lots of diverse experiences to share. We've got lots of other people to talk to in the coming year. Yes. To give a little teaser, we will talk about licenses a little bit. We will also um, cover other topics like um, open source culture, also covering topics like, you know, how companies need to adapt when they get involved in open source, like management, HR, way more people and functions are affected within a company than just the software developers. And probably a lot of organizations are still going through understanding and navigating that. And if a company decides to get involved, then that also brings in a cultural change that really needs to happen and we will talk about all the effects of when it's not happening because it does have effect on both the company as well as the the community where they are participating um so um, a lot of exciting topics are coming and we yep. will talk a bit more about again education uh, mentorship programs and uh, how the next generation is both benefiting from open source as well as super excited and just getting deep into the waters and uh, getting their hands dirty. That one is also super exciting to see. With that, that's all folks. That was our episode for today. We want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts and feedback in the comments section of the platform where you're following the podcast. This season is full of very interesting topics. For instance, open source licenses, culture within communities as well as companies, mentorship programs, open source within companies, or in other words, why does HR have to know what free and open source software is? Stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner. Um, you know, that, that was my first experience. Oh, I loved it. Uh, Y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And... Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like, I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like. <laughs> <laughs>